My text today is from 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. like to address the issue today of biblical submission and in about three weeks when I am again in the pulpit we will look at the subject of biblical leadership and just so that you remember this is not an issue particularly for the sake of you ladies this is not an issue that uh, that I can remember that I have uh, ever addressed in a sermon since I've been here. So this is not an issue that you are beat over the head with from this pulpit. And uh, if anything, we have certainly, I think, hammered away at biblical leadership and what leadership is according to God's word. But I do want to address biblical submission today. John Calvin candidly stated concerning the fifth commandment, which is honor thy father and thy mother. He said, this precept, which enjoins subjection to superiors, is exceedingly repugnant to the depravity of human nature, whose ardent desire of exaltation will scarcely admit of subjection. In other words, to put it in my own words, subjection runs completely contrary, completely against the grain of our self-inflated will and ego. And that is true of men as well as women, of children as well as adults. By nature, dear ones, we rebel against authority and by nature we do despise the fact that we are called to submit ourselves to others. Let's simply recognize our own condition, our own nature for what it is. That is the nature with which we were conceived and born. Now, What we are given by grace overcomes that, praise be to God. But that is our natural condition. And I will illustrate this natural resistance to lawful authority with a universal experience of all parents. Parents, In spite of all your warnings, of all of your instruction, and all your love and and affection for your child, no matter how hard you try to instill godly submission in your children, the sinful nature of man 
is such that even before your child matures to the point of being able to intelligently communicate why he doesn't want to obey you, he has already begun practicing that disobedience before he can even articulate why he doesn't want to. Now, who taught your child not to obey you? Did you send him to school to learn that? Did you spend hours every day saying, now, uh, daughter, son, you're not to obey your parents. You're to rebel against our authority. You're not to submit to our lawful commands. Of course not. It's a part of their nature. You can take the, the young child who is just beginning to crawl so that he can move from one location to another location. And you can see him approaching that plant in the living room. That plant you've told him many, many times not to touch. And as you watch the child, he turns around and he looks and he notices that you're watching. And he looks back at the plant and he looks back at you and then he grabs a hold of the plant. He will not submit. It is not in his natural being, his nature that he was born with to desire, to love submission. And dear ones, we might even say the very essence of sin is summarized in this phrase, which we find in one of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ of people who would not submit to this king who represents Jesus Christ, they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And that's the essence of sin. We'll not have God to reign over us, to rule over us. We'll not submit to his authority. <clears throat> You know, non-Christians, even non-Christians are not offended by a poor little helpless baby lying in a manger, surrounded by barnyard animals and an adoring Mary and Joseph. They're not offended by that. That kind of Jesus does not threaten their power and their autonomy. And so they keep him in that manger. Every year they keep him in that manger. That's not threatening. However, it was certainly very threatening to King Herod. Because King Herod knew that this was one who was prophesied to be the king of Israel the king of the Jews. And he had every male child two years of age and under murdered in Bethlehem in order to destroy this child. Why did the Pharisees plot to destroy Jesus? What was so threatening about the Lord Jesus and his ministry and what he taught? Well, Jesus threatened them because 
He said he was again the king of this kingdom of God. He threatened them because it was not their rule. It was not their authority, their tradition that ruled in this kingdom. It was God and his word and what Christ proclaimed. And so they falsely accused him, as we have already read, and they crucified him. You see, dear ones, the apostles preached a Christ to whom all men, women, and children owe worship and reverence, submission and obedience. There is no option. We owe it to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the blessed Spirit of God. And as a result of preaching this message, of unconditional submission to the living God, they were martyred for the truth. For Jesus Christ, dear ones, is Lord of all. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And in God, according to the word of God, we find the Lord God has subjected all things under his feet. And you know, when you were baptized, your baptism signifies as well. It visibly acknowledges Christ's lawful claim on your life. That you belong to the living God. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to Him. And that is why the lack of submission to Jesus Christ and the lack of submission to all of those who are his lawful delegates, his lawful representatives, is a very, very grievous sin. For it implicitly denies Christ's lordship. It implicitly denies the authority of the living God whom all lawful authority represents. According to the fifth commandment, the duty that we owe to those who are in authority over us, lawfully ordained as authority over us, is that of honor. In the larger catechism, question 127 and 128, I'd like to read those for you. Question 127 of the larger catechism asks the question, what is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority 
according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love, that so they may be an honor to them and to their government. Question 128. What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? The answer. The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them, envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons and places in their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to them and their government. Lawful authority, dear ones, is authority that is authorized and ordained by God. It is authority that is uh, in keeping with the will of God that we find in the scriptures. That is lawful authority. As a result of some of the recent changes in our church, we are going to address the ladies in our congregation, the ladies of the covenant. But we do want to simply make this note with regard to ecclesiastical authority. And I think similarly with regard to civil authority, but this specifically pertains to ecclesiastical authority. Samuel Rutherford, who was one of the commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, was a member of the Church of Scotland. He notes in a book entitled The Survey of the Survey of That Sum of Church Discipline the following. He says, For our church acknowledgeth no subjection nor subordination of inferior judicatures, that is, inferior courts, unto superiors, but in the Lord. Only insofar as that counsel and those decisions are in keeping with the Lord's counsel and will, there is required subjection. He goes on to say, that such unqualified subjection is to make synods and ecclesiastical judicatures lords of our faith, which the Reformed churches detest in popish councils. Unqualified, blind subjection and subordination, our Reformed forefathers say, is popish. Our subordination and our subjection, dear ones, is to lawful authority and lawful commands. We need to make that point at the very outset. Whether it's in the family, whether it is in the church, or whether it is in the civil government. I think to many today, and perhaps throughout history, 
Submission is a dirty word that implies inequality, inferiority of nature, of person, or worthlessness. To many, subjection and submission means that a person is a mere tool or a toy to be played with, to be used or abused and thrown away and used at one's own discretion. And sadly to say, many in these ordained places, these ordained institutions of the family, the church, and the civil government, we find that kind of abuse and misuse of authority. No doubt many have treated subordinates this way. But remember, they will give an account before the living God. Everyone who exercises the authority of God will give an account of how he has exercised that authority. I would furthermore remind you, just for women, to listen to this. It is not only women that are to be in subjection and submission, but in various relationships, men must as well be in submission and subjection. And so it is not only women who are commanded to be in subjection, but men in their several places may as well be in subjection. And so, again, the issue of biblical submission pertains not only to women. We will be making a pretty specific application of that in a few minutes. But I want you to realize, when we talk about submission, we're not picking on women. Paul did not hate women. God does not hate women. Paul loved women. God loves women. God has established an economy from the very point of creation in which men and women are to operate in order to fulfill the design which He has established in the family and in the church and in the civil government. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, before we turn our Bibles to 1 Peter, let me simply note, 1 Corinthians 11.3 certainly does not imply that submission means inferiority of nature. When we read from the larger catechism, and it used the term superiors and inferiors, that's talking about roles. That's not talking about nature and essence. For we find in 1 Corinthians 11.3, the apostle says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. You see, if we 
in any way either infer or practice or communicate to our wives, gentlemen, that they are inferior to us as to person, nature, essence, they better take a back seat because that's the case, then we have denied the Trinity. For we read here that Christ is in submission to God the Father. Does that imply inferiority of nature? That we are talking about that the Son of God has a different essence and nature than the Father? Of course not. This speaks in regard to role, with regard to divine economy, which God has planned, functional difference within the Trinity. You see, it is the Father who sends the Son. The Son does not send the Father. But that does not imply that the Son is inferior in nature to the Father. It is the, it is the Son who does the will of the Father and not the Father who does the will of the Son. But again, that does not imply that the Son is inferior in nature to the Father. And in the same verse, we find that the head of the woman is the man. And so, in that same sense, a functional headship, a role which God has given to man in leading women, that is what we are talking about when we talk about submission and subjection. And so, God have pity upon any of us as men who would treat our wives, therefore, as second-class citizens. God have mercy upon us, because we find in 1 Peter chapter 3, God will not take that lightly. Our prayers will be hindered. God's discipline will fall upon us. Take heed, gentlemen. Dear ones, just as I am convinced that if biblical leadership is to be properly exercised in the church, it must begin in the home. And we find that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, because one of the qualifications that God requires of those who serve in the office of bishop, a presbyter within the church of Jesus Christ, is that he rule his family in an orderly manner, that his children and his wife are in submission to him, that he be the, the husband of one wife, that he love one woman and care for one woman and treat her, as we will see in First Peter chapter 3, treat her as a joint heir in the grace of life.
so likewise, if just as in the case of biblical leadership, so likewise in the case of biblical submission, if that's to be faithfully exercised in the church, it must begin in the home. There must be evidences of the grace of submission within our homes. Otherwise, we cannot expect to see submission in the church of Jesus Christ. And you know, it is Satan's strategy to attack leadership and submission in the home. For in so doing, he realizes he will destroy God's order in all of society if he undermines his order in the family. Now, I could focus my remaining remarks on the need for children to submit to their parents. And it would be entirely appropriate to address that issue. And we, we will and we have addressed that issue in previous sermons and will do so in subsequent sermons. However, since my time is short today, I'm persuaded that children will learn the proper and biblical submission they owe to their parents, not only from Scripture, but also by watching and carefully studying a godly mother and wife. Women, I ask you, what are you teaching your own children about submission to God Submission to the elders in the church and submission to lawful civil authority by your submission or lack thereof to your husbands. Because you're teaching your children something. Every day you're teaching them. Have you missed the point of the golden rule in the area of submission? The golden rule being do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And that being submit unto others as you would have others submit unto you. Submit unto your husbands as you would have your children submit unto you. Do you want your children going, talking to their friends behind your back and criticizing you and, and cutting you in half and... and uh, uh, roasting you. If you don't want that happening to you, then again, the golden rule, what Christ says, you'd better be careful about how and what you say about your husbands as well. Do you consider submission in the home to be a blessing or a curse? What is your attitude toward this? Because your attitude toward submission will find its way worked out into your life and in, into your practice. You cannot hide these kinds of things. It will be evident. Or is it your practice to... Continually remind your children that God has placed your husband and their father as the head of the home. That it was not his idea, the father's idea, 
to be the head of the home, that it was God's idea. Do your children, dear women and ladies of the covenant, do your children have the blessed opportunity to read in a living epistle, namely your life, a godly submission that cheerfully and willingly submits from the heart that's not in a power struggle with the husband. Please turn now to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we draw some very important principles from this portion of Scripture concerning biblical submission. And I will tell you at the outset, this is not necessarily a verse-by-verse commentary of this passage, but I have, as I said, sought to simply excerpt from this passage biblical principles pertaining to submission. 1 Peter chapter 3. First of all, I would have you look at this passage and we would note, first of all, what biblical submission is not. What it is not. First of all, biblical submission is not an unqualified subjection and submission. It is not exalting your husband to the position of Christ. That is not biblical submission. This section on submission begins actually... In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, where we read these words, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. There is no unqualified, unconditional submission when we are submitting ourselves for the Lord's sake. We are submitting in the Lord. We are, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, we are submitting as is fit in the Lord. And we must again note that to be the case. Submission to Christ must be preeminent in your submission to your husbands, ladies. Submission to Jesus Christ. That you consciously recognize that's what's going on here. That in your submission to your husband and his lawful commands, you're submitting to Jesus Christ. Therefore, you cannot offer some kind of blind obedience and submission to your husband if he commands you to disobey Jesus Christ. If he calls you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, that would bring dishonor to the name of Jesus Christ, you cannot obey those commands. 
Now, it's not that you gleefully look around for opportunities to rebel against your husband. That certainly is not what we are saying here. Rather, even when you cannot submit, I would go as far as to say, when you cannot submit because a command is unlawful, your whole demeanor should not be one of pride and arrogance, ladies, but rather one that would communicate, I would love to submit to you, my dear husband, if I could, but because I submit to Jesus Christ, I cannot disobey Him. And to submit to you in this unlawful command would be to dishonor Him and to disobey Him. And so, remember, all submission is submission to Jesus Christ. The second thing, that biblical submission is not, is that biblical submission is not a mindless act. You know, critics of biblical submission in the feminist movement believe and they write and they, they speak Things like this, that it's a way, biblical submission is a way to simply give up all thinking for oneself. It's to become a mindless slave, a robot, an idiot that simply responds to commands. The husband pushes a button and you jump. A toy simply to be played with. You see, this is the picture that is painted by those who do not believe the authoritative teaching of the Word of God. They would try and paint submission in these terms, but that is a lie from the pit of hell. That is not what biblical submission is. It is not mindless at all. To the contrary... Look at the way this passage begins in 1 Peter chapter 3. Who is he addressing here? Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Rather than this being a mindless act, here you have wives who have become Christians and are willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of the fact that their husbands have not followed Christ. Now, is that a mindless act? Of course not. They have very, from the very outset established the fact that they have engaged a sanctified mind in following Christ, wherever he leads, and being obedient to his commandments preeminently. That's not a mindless robot. That's the work of God's Spirit illuminating their minds and giving to them grace. You see, dear ones, biblical submission does not imply that you all of a sudden become a mute and cannot speak 
and cannot reason with your husband in a godly fashion concerning various issues. It does not mean that at all. Certainly in the passage which we read in 1 Peter 3.1, it says that if any obey not the word, that they can be one even without you every day teaching, speaking, addressing these particular issues. They can be one I think there needs to be a verbal communication of the truth to husbands, even unbelievers. But I believe what the Apostle is getting at is that you ladies do not have to continuously bring up before your husband what you believe them, ways in which you believe them to be erring. State what you believe and then let the Holy Spirit of God and let your life and your conversation be a testimony and witness which confirms what you have already said to them. Certainly, the Word of God nowhere simply says that we are to give only a testimony with our lives, but not with our mouths. Everywhere we find that word and deed go hand in hand. Faith and works go hand in hand. And so, the Lord is not denying here or teaching that there should be no verbal testimony at all. But rather that don't think that it depends upon your verbal testimony to bring your husbands to the truth. God is more powerful than simply your going on and on thinking that it depends upon your continued testifying to the truth. I have seen by personal experience more often than not a wife drive a husband away from the truth. Now, I don't condone the husband's attitude here, but I have seen a wife drive a husband away from the truth because she nagged him to death. And wives, that can occur. And I don't believe that that is what God calls women to do, to nag their husbands. Give a faithful, clear testimony to the truth and let your conversation and your life bear witness to the truth. We find in the case of Abigail, she spoke the truth concerning David to her husband Nabal. She was one who gave wise counsel and husbands listened to this. Your wives have important things to tell you. And you are like Nabal, a fool, if you do not listen to your wives. Nabal means fool. And when he did not heed the advice of his wife, when he did not prepare and give rest and shelter and food to David, and when he heard 
that David was ready to, to slay him, the very thought brought such fear and trepidation to his heart that he died right on the spot. But his wife counseled him correctly. You remember Sarah gave wise counsel to Abraham when Sarah said, Hagar should be separated. Remove her from the camp. Remove her child. Her child shall not be an heir with Isaac. And God said, listen to your wife. Listen to what Sarah has told you. She's right. And I recall when Apollos needed to be instructed that it wasn't simply Aquila that came and instructed Apollos, that Priscilla accompanied her husband and the verb is in the plural tense that they both instructed him in a more accurate understanding of the Word of God. And so, we could speak to both husbands and wives here. Wives don't nag your husbands. Live before them the truth. And husbands, don't be fools. Listen to your wives and what they have to say. The third thing that biblical submission is not, is that it is not timidity or cowardice. One who submits to lawful authority is not one who is living in slavish fear of those in authority. That is not what biblical submission implies. Wives are to submit not because they lack courage to stand up to their husbands, They are to submit to their husbands to subject themselves because it is the commandment of God. And in so doing, they are submitting themselves to the Lord. We've already noted in, in sermons in the past that biblical courage is fearing God more than you fear any man. One who is a faithful wife, therefore, and who exercises biblical submission will be one who fears God, who believes that she should submit to her husband and all of his lawful commands because she fears God so much. A reverential and holy fear of the living God. A pure and sinless fear of the Lord God. And so I plead with you, wives, with you, dear ladies of the covenant, I plead with you, courageously submit, not fearfully, courageously submit to your husbands in the Lord. It does say in verse 2 of chapter 3, while they behold your chaste conduct or conversation coupled with fear. But again, that's not a slavish fear. That is the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> the fourth matter 
that I would draw to your attention that biblical submission is not is that, as we've already indicated, biblical submission, according to this text, is not inequality. For we find in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, that is, with your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Heirs together of the grace of life. You see, I think the practice of many that I have witnessed in the way in which husbands rule their homes is because they believe their wife is the weaker vessel that she's someone they can kick around. See, it's quite the contrary. The Word of God here teaches that because she is the weaker vessel, she is to be honored. She is to be given special honor because she is the weaker vessel and because she is an heir, a joint heir to the grace of life with you. So, biblical submission, dear women, beloved, is not equality. Or inequality, I should say. Different roles, different responsibilities, but not inequality in nature and person. You know, the most basic biological and God-ordained difference in a woman's role is the ability to bear children. And yet today, note how many women despise that most basic characteristic that God has given to a woman by murdering their own children. In the United States, a million and a half or more unborn children are murdered every year. I don't know what the statistics are in Canada. That's in the U.S. alone. And it shows you how much women despise the very thing that sets them apart. That thing that we point to as far as a role and a function a biological distinction from men, how much they despise that characteristic which God has given to them. Yes, there is inequality in function and in role, but that is for your glory. Not for your dishonor, but for your honor, ladies. What is biblical submission from this text? <clears throat> biblical submission, first of all, is a God-given grace that willingly follows the God-ordained authority in the home. We're speaking specifically to the home at this point that willingly submits and subjects 
herself to that God-ordained authority in the home, to all lawful commands within the home. And first of all, according to our text, this biblical submission is an inner quality. Before you even see it in the way in which women externally submit to their husbands and in their speech, the Bible, the Apostle Peter says by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that biblical submission is an inward quality and grace. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. Of great price. You see, dear ones, a woman's true beauty is that which is inward according to this passage. It is a, a gentle and meek spirit. A meekness which, which does not insist on her own way A gentleness that is not pushy nor self-assertive, but a quiet and meek spirit. Not a loud and boisterous voice, but a quiet and meek spirit. This is how wives can influence their husbands in the way of godliness by their quiet and meek spirit. Because, ladies, there is nothing more charming. You want to charm a man? You want to charm your husband, I should say, wives? You will charm him by a meek and quiet spirit. The hidden person of the heart will draw that husband to honor you, to protect you, to care for you, to listen to you. That is what God finds priceless. It is of great price, God says. It's precious in the sight of the Lord God. And so I encourage you ladies, stop pounding your fists on the table. Stop yelling and shouting and screaming. Stop slamming doors. Stop nagging your husbands and manifest, even in difficult circumstances and situations, manifest a meek and quiet spirit.
<clears throat> and then finally, biblical submission, what it is. Biblical submission not only involves something in the inner person, a meek and quiet spirit, but it also involves obedience. It does involve obedience to all lawful commands. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. <clears throat> Obedience to all of the lawful commands of your husband. You know, true biblical submission, dear ones, I think is most clearly manifested when you are called to submit to a decision with which you're not in full agreement. Not saying it's a sinful decision. You're just not in agreement with that decision. It's not a choice that you personally would have made and you've discussed it with your husband and he's listened attentively, carefully to what you have said, but he comes out on a different side of the issue than you do. What are you going to do? God says you are to obey your husbands. Unless he commands you to do something unlawful, you're to obey your husbands. Sarah did so, calling her husband Lord. Now that, I think, implies simply she recognized his headship. She recognized that when he made a decision that was lawful, that did not command her to sin against God's word, she was responsible to be obedient to that decision. And so this, I believe, from our text, God makes very, very clear that submission and obedience are required by wives to their husbands. And I would encourage you, wives, if you, again, want to practice biblical submission, you not simply conform outwardly. And I know because, as I said, men have to submit as well in certain circumstances. There are situations in which we would like to say something that we know is disrespectful because we're not of a right mind or attitude at that point to express ourselves. It is better that we bite our tongues better we do not say anything at that point until we can say it rationally, reasonably, and because we love our husbands. And so I would ask, is your submission simply one of mere outward conformity? Are you grumbling? Are you complaining and kicking all the way? Or is the grace of submission finding its work inside of your life as well? Wives, pray for your husbands. You may think you have a difficult job, and 
I don't doubt that you do. We all have difficult callings and jobs. But let me assure you that it is extremely difficult. If a husband is conscientious about the duty which God has given to him in leading his family, it is no picnic to be responsible for leading a family in the ways of the Lord. It is extremely difficult. There is great responsibility that he will have to stand before God and give an account as to how he has led his family. Pray for your husbands. Cover their weaknesses in love rather than taking delight in exposing every single fault that they have. This is a supernatural grace that comes from Christ. For no one can exercise this kind of biblical submission in the home or in the church or in the realm of the civil government until they are themselves submitted to Jesus Christ. And you know, Jesus isn't calling you to do something that he himself didn't do. In Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52, we find these words. This was after Mary, Joseph, and Jesus returned from the temple in Jerusalem. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I don't know if there's, in my judgment, a more amazing thing to read in all of Scripture than that the Son of God was subject to creatures. Sinful, frail, weak creatures like Mary and Joseph. Righteous, certainly. Loving the Lord, absolutely. And yet sinners. And yet he was submissive in subjection to all of their lawful commands. The Son of God practiced submission. There, I believe, is one to whom we can submit. He submitted to those who were over him in his human body. And dear ones, there is one, even the Lord Jesus Christ, whose righteous submission can be imputed to you because that is what is imputed to you when you trust in Christ. It is all of His righteous submission to the will of the living God. It is that righteousness which becomes yours. And so His submission becomes your blessing. Never think of submission as something Terrible or awful because it is Christ's submission which wins and purchases your salvation. He submitted Himself even to the point of the cross on your behalf. And so we find in Hebrews chapter 10, in conclusion, these words concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and His righteous submission 
Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do the will of God, or thy will, O God. Dear ladies of the covenant, Christ not only did the will of God, he delighted to submit himself to the will of God. And his submission has brought you salvation. Your submission to the living God can actually be a means to bring salvation to your children and to your husband and to your extended family members as they observe that righteous submission in your life. Let us stand together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Thou hast challenged us with Thy word today in each and every heart. Whether or not we are female, we who are male as well have been challenged. For Thy word cuts into the very, uh, the very center of our being. It separates between the joints and the marrow between the soul and the spirit. It divides to uh, cutting asunder the thoughts and the intentions of a man. And Lord, we have felt the quick, the piercing sword of thy spirit today in our lives. And we ask our Father that thou would not only allow us to feel it, but to know it and to practice thy will O Lord, give to the women in our congregation. Give to the ladies of the covenant. Cause them to be daughters of Sarah in their submission to their husbands. And by that submission, O Lord, which is precious in thy sight, that they would speak ever so loudly concerning a faithful testimony to Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all glory and honor. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780 
450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.